Welcome to the Lectionary Call-In Podcast for Sunday, January 28, 2024, the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. Each week uh, we meet and focus on the gospel lesson in the lectionary for the coming Sunday, and we welcome you, whether you're viewing or listening on one of the audio uh, venues, and we have a special guest this morning that you will meet in a, mo- in a moment. We welcome this opportunity to engage with Scripture and with each other and with you. And at the end, I will uh, remind you of a way you can communicate with us, and we encourage that. And joining me this morning on this podcast are my fellow team members. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. John Debevoise in Tampa. And I'm Bill Hall uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, and the lead this morning. Welcome to John Debevoise, the senior pastor of Homosea Presbyterian Church, which is the sponsor of this podcast. John, we're glad to have you with us, and we look forward to what you will share with us. Bill and Sarah. Thanks for including me, and also thank you for your faithfulness in this ministry as um, uh, Don has transitioned into a different chapter. We are really grateful that you all are holding down the foundation. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, a brief uh, reflection and then the scripture and our responses for this morning. Two weeks ago, we read and reflected in John's gospel of Jesus' calling his first disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Last week, we reviewed in the first instance in Mark of Jesus' calling disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus called them to follow him and become fishers of people. During our discussion, it was stressed that fishing was a metaphor and image, not of literal mechanical catching people. Rather, in my view, it communicates that relationships with people are central to Jesus's ministry and further that followers of Jesus will seek to reach out to and influence other persons. Uh, Now this week, We will read and study what happens next in the Gospel of Mark, reading from Mark 1, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28 from the New Revised Standard Version. This is God's word. Let us listen. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and the man cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. 
They were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? At once, Jesus' fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Now, I have three questions, and this first one, Sarah, I will come to you first in a moment. This passage begins, they went to Capernaum. I remind us that this immediately follows last week's reading, where the four disciples are called. So, they went to Capernaum indicates that the four disciples Jesus had just called, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were with him. So in Mark's gospel, the first event recorded after the calling of the disciples is an interchange between Jesus, a troubled man, and the unclean spirit that is controlling Sarah. How do you interpret Mark's shaping the narrative in this way? Well, I, uh, in my adventures this week in commentaries, I discovered that Mark Davis calls this particular passage, the blog he wrote for it, separating a man from his cage. Matt Skinner asks, who authorized this ministry? Um, and what does an authentic authority look like, sound like, and interact like? In Mark, it seems like Jesus is setting a standard for how God wants to interact with humanity, with believers, and even with us. Um, Mark depicts Jesus as the one uniquely authorized, commissioned, and empowered, or empowered, to declare and institute the reign of God. Um, David Lose offers, Mark shares the story of confrontation and freedom first, because it's at the heart of the gospel story he tells, and the gospel story we are invited to live into and through. So I thought it was interesting that the book of Mark introduces us to what it means to be free and released from the binding that the world has put on us, that society might put on us, um, that would separate us from God. That's what I. That's what I'm interested. That's what I think is interesting about how Mark shapes his narrative. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, John, your thoughts on the flow of this narrative? I experience it as consistent with the verses in the first part of the first chapter of Mark. as to say, you have no infancy narratives. Um, Jesus comes onto the stage as an adult. There's no genealogy. He comes... Uh, uh, with John the Baptist um, as an adult. Um, there's no story of um, Elizabeth and Mary meeting each other. Um, this is an adult biography of Jesus. And uh, so while we're still in the first chapter, in the quick and immediately Kaya of Mark, we find now um, Jesus moving into ministry. Um, and uh, it seems consistent with um, the rapid 
or um, forthright telling, Mark's telling of the story. It matches the verbal um, expressions of Jesus that have come earlier. Um, when he calls disciples, you know, those are not long sentences. Those are not long teaching passages. Um, and here also, um, uh, Jesus' words are still continuing in short um, exhortations, imperatives. Um, so I experience it as a part of the flow that he's established. I also note we read this, um, as it says, they went to Capernaum. After that, they went to Capernaum. Um, they didn't go very far. It's not, those Those are not uh, where they were along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, they could be, Capernaum itself is on the shore of Galilee. Uh, so, you know, they, they have not gone a very far geographical area um, relative to um, the world as a whole. Um, it's, it's simply walking uh, a distance into this village. So it, it seems close, and it seems a narrative that's moving quickly, uh, and Jesus is speaking in that quick way. Uh, and I, I am also, though, engaged in terms of something that's different with the fact that the first opening lines that in the narrative is the Sabbath, and they gather uh, in the synagogue for worship. Um, that seems right for the beginning. That seems right for the first chapter to me. Um, the community of people gathering to worship together, to hear teaching on the Sabbath. Um, that's a great beginning. It gives us what we share as a community of faith. Still, we're still gathering um, on the Sabbath and and sharing teaching and interacting with it. Um so it seems to make connections to me um, with the reader, especially the reader out of the Christian community. Um, we are close to Jesus uh, with respect to what he's doing and the uh, um, familiar patterns that we still are doing. Now, it's an exciting day in worship um, that isn't just like uh, what we experience, at least in my journey with worship every day. But the narrative itself seems familiar and in line with the way Mark is bringing us into the life of Jesus. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, and my comments will somewhat echo that. We've noted before that one of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Now, for some reason, not in the New Revised Standard Version, but in the original Greek, the word immediately is used three times in this passage, uh, verse 21, 23, and 28. So Mark has this sense of urgency. And it, I would agree with you, John, it's another example of the consistency of Mark's style. It's fast moving. <laughs> it's let's, let's get on to the next thing. As soon as the four disciples are called to use modern day language, Jesus puts them to work. He goes to work. He moves into a place of worship and also human need. This event is centered, as you noted, John, in the synagogue, a place of worship. Now, I mentioned in my introductory remarks that fishing can be understood as a metaphor. I take it as a metaphor for the importance of human relationships. It's about people. So we can infer 
or at least I do, that Jesus immediately after calling the first disciples demonstrates what he meant by fishing. <laughs> he said he would make them fishers of men. What did that mean? And not to carry that fishing imagery too far. When you fish, you can never be sure what you might catch. <laughs> so in ministry, we will encounter all sorts of people in diverse circumstances. Um, and Mark has Jesus immediately teach these four new disciples that he will be where people are, dealing with them as they are, but not leaving them as they are. Uh, rather, Jesus's mission is not only announcing God's message, but his ministry is also transforming people. Thank you, colleagues. Now, and John, I'll come to you first with this question. Verses 23 to 24 report that just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How do you interpret this response by the unclean spirit, John? You, um, you get this. I, I interpret that Mark is using the narrative of Jesus' life as he writes the biography to bring us the identity of Jesus quickly. And we've had this once. Uh, a revealing of the identity of Jesus in this first chapter, just a few verses back, when the voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved. It's actually the second time, because first John the Baptist identifies him. Then the voice from heaven identifies him. Now the demon, uh, the man with an unclean spirit identifies him. And um, he cries out. Um, and uh, the, uh, the man does, and the unclean spirit with, within him. So it's a different um, acclamation. It's a different source of identification than the first two. It, um, it's a man with an unclean spirit versus John the Baptist, a human, um, but somebody who is a part of God's salvation history. And, of course, a voice from heaven being a divine source. Now, yet another part of God's creation speaks the identity of Jesus. And it happens in church that I, I too quickly make the move between synagogue and church. But by that, I mean the place of worship of these people. And now this, I, this declaration of identity comes in the midst of the worshiping place and the worshiping community. And from another realm of God's creation, uh, the, the realm of of, of what we typically in reading the text call demons. Um, and so I think it's a third revealing. Uh, uh, and I'm also uh, noting that they call him here, Jesus of Nazareth, um, which, you know, um, seeks to uh, identify the community that he's come from. It's, it, it's, it's not Galilee. It's close to Galilee, but it's, identified regularly as a place other than Galilee. And, and so he's associated with a particular, he's a particular man 
from a particular geographic place and all of the things in terms of connection, family. So that's a part of the identification that come with that. Uh, and then the phrase, the Holy One of God. Um, and it's uh, Holy One of God as a phrase uh, I could only find in two other places in the Bible. Um, one is in Luke in this exact same story. The story in Luke is clearly a repetition of this one. And then also it's in the Gospel of John. Peter identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God. And so, you know, I, the title engages me. It rings to me um, with the familiarity of um, a title used in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, but um, they're somewhat different. They're, they're, they're like uh, God and Hosea, where God says, um, I, I, I am holy, I am not like you, with reference to God's self. So I can't find it repeated exactly in the Old Testament. Um, maybe it's there, but I haven't found it yet. But it rings familiar with those uh, identifications. I, to be the Holy One of God, what does that mean? Um, and I think Mark brings us into that um, identity um, from yet a third source here, still very early uh, in the in the narrative of the life of Jesus. Thank you, John. Very helpful. Sarah. So while in possession of the man, the unclean spirits have authority over that person. And so I think this is a definition, uh, again, of Jesus' identity, like John said, but also, what does that mean? What, what kind of authority does the Holy One of God have? And so we, we establish suddenly that there's this range of authority that Jesus has. And to those observing, the unclean spirits are not of this world. Um, they represent something out of this world or cosmic, if you will, in the struggle. And that, that idea comes from David Sakna uh, or Sa mm, Jacobson. I'll just say his last name, David Jacobson, who's writing for workingpreacher.org. Um, the, the struggle takes place around humanity, and it seems to be something over which we have no power. And Jesus disrupts this struggle by reclaiming the authority over the man's existence. Um, Matt Skinner adds that this exorcism then does not eliminate evil or oppression, but it denies those kinds of forces, the authority or power to hold ultimate sway over people's lives. And so again, it's this, this idea that Jesus is interrupting or disrupting um, situational conditions in a way that set us up for who Jesus is a little bit more about what does that mean? What does this authority that he's been given um, look like? And what does it, how does it manifest in, in reality? So that's how I find um, this response to the unclean spirit. It's an interesting dialogue. Yes, it is. Thank you, Sarah. Something I noticed for the first time this year is a point of grammar. The spirit is referred to in the singular, but when the spirit speaks, it says, what have you to do with us? Plural. Now, one can make too much of that, but from my uh, modern day perspective, 
uh, I, I take that as an indication that this man was troubled deeply and in a multi-layered way. There's a complexity to the power of evil, whether it's an addiction or, or whatever. And the power, also this story reminds us painfully that the power of evil, which is destructive of human health, wholeness, and community, is real and present even in a place of worship, sometimes especially in worship. There is no hiding place. Sometimes a sanctuary can become the locale of abuse and harm. Now, in my life in ministry, on a few occasions, I was attending a worship service and in several others leading a worship service where something similar happened. A person disrupted worship from all outward appearance, deeply troubled mentally or however. And fortunately, in each of the instances, it was managed in what I thought was a necessary and yet compassionate, gentle way. Um, Now, Jesus uh, rebukes the spirit saying, be silent and come out of him. My take on that is Jesus is clearly differentiating between the man and the destructive spirit within the man. Now, I've mentioned before that I've had hundreds of opportunities through the years to be a friend and a pastor and an encourager to people recovering from addictions, uh, 12-step programs. Uh, One of the struggles is for the person, and this is putting it maybe simplistically, to come to understand they did bad things, but they are not a bad person. Often people in recovery, a part of the recovery is to admit how they have harmed others and, if appropriate, to make amends a very difficult process that must be managed carefully and prayerfully. Um, But often the recovering person is awash in guilt to the point that they think they are truly a bad or evil person. Now, this is a difficult thing to talk about, but I think Jesus reminds us here that even we good people do hurtful things. <laughs> there, there can be, as I noted last week, there's a Joni, Jonah lurking in each of us to resist God's call. There's also um, within each of us the capacity to harm others. Now, my third question, and thank you, team members. What meanings and passages, messages, <laughs> do you hear in this narrative that can, in the here and now, inform and shape the life of the church and you as an individual follower of Jesus Christ. Those of you who've been on a long time know that in some form or other, I always ask this question, the so what, okay? Uh, This is an ancient text, and yet it speaks to us now. 
and here's what I came up with, and I look forward to hearing what it triggers in John and Sarah. Who is worthy is a subject of debate in all cultures at all times. We could have read in this narrative that a couple of people grabbed this man and threw him out of the sanctuary, out of the synagogue, um, because he would, could be deemed unworthy. We remember another story of a demon's possession person who was isolated, the Gerizim demoniac. He was isolated from society, maybe appropriately, maybe he was a, a great a risk to people. But this issue of who is worthy is very relevant today in our debates over whom we show compassion to and who we choose, whom we choose not to be compassionate with. So for me, there's a renewed urgency in our call to be compassionate and also reminded of the challenges involved in serving deeply troubled people, people in recovery or mentally ill persons. Jesus in Matthew 10 says, to be wise as serpent and kind as doves or gentle as doves. So that's that sometimes is a difficult balancing act between necessary protection and compassion. Now, this story is told in Mark, chapter 1, and in Luke, chapter 4. Interestingly, in Luke, this story follows right after Jesus was rejected while preaching in his hometown of Nazareth when the people tried to kill him. Uh, again, located in worship. And Jesus's reaction is to move on, to take his own advice of shake the dust off your feet and minister with compassion to a troubled human being. And next week in the lectionary, immediately following this passage, Jesus again will minister to a person in need, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick. Like our modern-day first responders, Jesus went toward human need and risk rather than running from it. And it seems to me that this story is a reminder that healing can occur not only in an emergency room, hospital, or counseling office, but also in worship. May it be so. Sarah. I'm thinking about those things that modern, the modern dynamic, the modern... (laughs) The modern demonic brings um, situations and thinking from that are based on fear or uncertainty and doubt. Um, things that separate us from the people we love and things that separate us from God. And that fear alone can begin a small fissure of self-absorbed distraction and then brings about a widening gap, maybe in the acquisition of um, obsession Um, sometimes even resulting in a me first, us first mentality that fully separates us from God. Yet Jesus is is recognized by the demonic, holds authority over them, and embodies a steadfast promise of God's vision for what humanity can be. 
the church walks forward with humility into this promise um, as the redeemed witness. And Jesus is set loose from God into the world. And we kind of hear that um, when the voice from heaven breaks in and, and declares who he is. And the direct result, as the direct result, humanity gets set loose from the demonic. There's some interesting um, hyper, hyper, hyperbolic thinking there for me. And I just find that very rich. Um, that in, in the gift of Jesus to us, we are set loose, that we are freed, that we have been, um, I guess, released from where we were held captive. Uh, and and for me, I think that's a, a fresh take on how the church serves in the world today. Sarah, as you said that, it came to mind something I had meant to say, that evil spirit can mean many different things. Is prejudice an evil spirit? Is the desire for revenge an evil spirit? Again, the possibilities of healing and worship to be reminded to love our enemies. John, we invite you to respond to this question. You all make me think of uh, Charles Schultz Peanuts comic where Linus and Charlie Brown and Lucy are lying on the ground looking up at clouds in the sky. And (laughs) Charlie Brown says, what do you all see? And uh, Linus says, I think I see a mighty dragon with a knight in battle with him, holding his armor and coming at him with his lance. And Lucy says, well, I see a betrayal of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's um, Sistine Chapel ceiling here. I can see some of the images I see there on it. And, and they say, how about you, Charlie Brown? And he said, well, I saw a duck. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I'm i astounded, uh, you know, at the depth of that uh, you're bringing out of it, because I find just some very immediate um, uh, and I almost want to say surface uh, applications uh, that, uh, uh, you know, I, I both encounter in it and take away from it. And one is I'm, I'm, I'm very um, uh, moved by or engaged with. Uh, at the very beginning where it's the Sabbath and they go to the synagogue and Jesus teaches. I mean, in a very practical application, it says to me, go to church, get up and go to church, <laughs> go to church on the Sabbath. You know, that really sets us apart. People who on a weekly basis, whether they do it digitally or whether they do it in person, they're getting up and being a part of a gathering of a particular community gathered around a particular set of words, a book, and spending then time trying to live those out and interpret them to one another in fellowship and in teaching with one another. A good portion of the world is not doing that weekly. That's a, a shaping thing. And the breadth of it from here, I mean, I could preach a sermon on this Sunday that simply is about get up and come to church. Of course, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> but I I think that's a behavior that the Gospel of Mark, the earliest of the Gospel, brings us to in terms of what the, what would Jesus do? Well, he got up and went to church, <laughs> not the synagogue. And that's a behavior that we can engage in, too. And and then uh, I, I am struck, as you've seen in other in commentaries, but I am struck by the notion of teaching that astounds. And it's set, taking away from it, it's taken my mind to thinking, um, whose teaching was it that astounded me? Um, did I ever know a teacher 
Um, and you know that that being astounding as a teacher comes before the man with the unclean spirit speaks. Um, and so it's not just his exorcism that they're astounded by. It was his teaching. Um, one commentator I saw said this with respect to authority, the pattern of teaching, and this rings true with my own reading and experience in first century um, Israel, was especially of dialogue and comparing traditions. Um, and you used a lot of precedents, and your respondents would quote precedents. Um, but Mark here in this first chapter clearly doesn't have Jesus doing that. It's exhortations, imperatives, short. It's different. And he claims authority. He, he, he Like when he says, be silent, come out of him, that's an authoritative uh, uh, command. Um, and follow me uh, is as well. So Jesus' teaching is different from what they would have experienced uh, in that it claims authority in terms of what he exhorts people and unclean spirits to in that uh, place. Whose teaching astounded, and uh, not to say that whose teaching had an imperative to it for me, but is there something that, that we do, you know, in our actions with others that follows this pattern and where has it been present? I, I'm looking for um, what what's astounding me this week in terms of um, the word and the presence of God around me. And finally, I'll say I take away an awareness of the long reality of unclean spirits as a part of the created order amongst us. I say it that way because I remember how delighted we are with angels and how much we like to talk about angels and sing about angels and wear little angels, you know, on different, have angels in our homes as artifacts and on our Christmas trees. We like angels and the idea of angels pretty much. Um, and I was reading about angels uh, in one of the several times I've preached on angels and I was reading in Bart's Dogmatics, and he's got a long exposition on angels and how they're a part of God's created order, and they're not people. And it goes on for a long time. It's just wonderful, uh, and it makes sense, and is deeply based. And you stop and you turn the page, and he says, now that we've dealt with angels, we have to deal with the reality of demons. <laughs> and he rolls it into and you're just like, what? You believe in demons? You know? And so I take away the question. Modern people, what do we think of unclean spirits, and how do we um, encounter that? And before before we move too quickly in our um, supposed modernism or even postmodernism, to simply discount it as um, artifacts from an ancient way, pre-scientific enlightenment of thinking, um, I think we do well to um, acknowledge that there's mystery in this. And that at least the Bible, I think, sees them as a part of God's created order um, that is um, opposed to the purposes of God or resistant to the purposes of God. Um, and there's just great mystery around it. We shouldn't dismiss them too quickly. I think we should at least have humility about that we're dealing with mystery here in, in, uh, in this. Uh, I I know the move of um, seeing as I work with loved ones who have battled with addictions and friends who have, uh, how, how, how honest it is to speak of possession and how it looks like a life possessed. Um, I, I, I wonder 
how they speak of that or you know um, how I, I want to be careful that I don't too quickly say they're possessed that you know I I I I I long to hear from them how they find this passage with the unclean spirit connecting with their life do they say saying I've heard them Bill use that language before uh, I know you know the parallel connection um, but I in some ways for myself it kind of lets me off of the going forward reality hook of um, where am I dabbling with unclean spirits or what unclean spirits are contending, you know, for my personality. Let me name some of them. Anger, um, you know, gluttony, um, uh, avarice, um, uh, greed, mean-spiritedness. There's a bunch of them (laughs) that that are in the world. And um, so, I, I walk away thinking about unclean spirits and where they are struggling for possession of my of our lives, including my own, and and the good news that Jesus has direct, immediate authority over them. Thank you, John. You remind us that especially in our day and time, we must take seriously the capacity for human evil and destructiveness, sometimes in the name of God. So thank you for that reminder. And I'll build on your comments about worship by reminding us that this podcast is sponsored by Palmasia Presbyterian Church, located at 3501 San Jose Street, Tampa, Florida, uh, where there's robust and multiple opportunities for teaching and learning or worship, uh, great music, great fellowship. I highly recommend that to you. If you happen to be looking for a church home, we would welcome you visiting us. You can check us out online at palmacia.org, P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. And you can email us on this podcast at lectionary call in at palmacia.org. That'll be displayed in a moment when we conclude. Thank you, John. It's been good to have you with us. Thank you for your insight, Sarah. Uh, to my team members and all viewers and listeners, have a good week, and we will see you next week.